Hi, I'm Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook, and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. So we're still in the book of Mark, and um, today as we're looking into, the, into uh, Mark chapter 5, we're going to read through that. There's going to be three areas where we're going to see Jesus exhibiting his dominion and his power. The first of, of those is going to be Jesus' dominion over spiritual powers, which are very real and very active. The second one, we're going to be looking at Jesus' power over sickness and death. And then thirdly, we'll be looking into his power over political and religious powers, which are an ever-present undercurrent throughout the book of Mark. So I'm slightly out of breath. Bear with me, and I'll uh, catch up and try not to have an aneurysm while I'm teaching today. Mark chapter 5. Did you already introduce Mark, what we've been talking about already? <laughs> Over the past, um, the past year, we've been looking at the book of Mark. We're going to take 2017 and we're going to explore the gospel of Mark uh, in some detail. Now, the gospel of Mark has a central theme, and that central theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. So all the way through, if you ever have a question, why would Mark share this story, or what's the point of this parable, or why do you think he made sure that detail was in there? All the time you can know that it, the reason is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what this is about. So today as we look at Jesus' power over spiritual, over sickness and death, and over political and religious undercurrents, the reason Mark is sharing is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the theme. That's the point. I'd like to remind you of something that the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. We may not see it all the time. It may not be in our face as modern, post-enlightenment Westerners, with all of our humanism and all of our scientific understanding. But spiritual powers are very much at work. And the actions of the angelic and the demonic realm are very real. And we ignore those to our peril. And it's why Paul was warning and making sure that we stay aware it's not just flesh and blood that we are wrestling against. So bear that in mind as we engage in the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, join me in Mark chapter 5. We're going to go verses 1 through 10 and then 11 through 17. And we'll take a stop and, and begin to look at it. So Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gergesians. And as soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, 
He ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name, Jesus asked him. My name is Legion. He answered him, Because we are many. And he begged him earnestly again not to send him out of the region. Funny that the demons were so comfortable there. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us into the pigs so that we may enter them. So Jesus gave them permission to come out and enter into the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down a steep bank into the sea and were drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported into the town and in the countryside. And people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw him who had been demon-possessed sitting there dressed in his right hand. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs, and they began to beg him to leave their country. And isn't that just the way? When we see things we don't understand, when we're confronted with something that makes us uncomfortable, our first reaction is often, just get away. Just go away. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to see it. I don't want to engage it. Just go away. Isn't that the way in our personal relationships, though? When we're uncomfortable, maybe we have a grudge with somebody. We've had an argument. You've, you've wronged them somehow. Maybe you've talked bad about them behind their back. Or, or you have an opposing viewpoint. When you get around people, isn't, isn't it that you just kind of want to put some distance because it's uncomfortable? Don't we do that? I, I know we do. And wouldn't it be true today if I were to say that this had happened and this had happened in the spiritual realm and, and this evil thing or this demonic thing had happened or somebody's had an encounter where they figure it must be an angel, doesn't that make us all kind of go, uh, we kind of want to back away from the situation, protect ourselves, hedge ourselves a bit? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree that maybe the reaction of the Gergesenes would be pretty similar to a reaction from us today? They're not that different from us. I mean, if you give them... You know, the internet and a car, they're, they're just like us. They're just same human beings, just as savvy, just as smart. They just live in a different place, different day and age. And we act the same way when it comes to things in the, in, in the spiritual realm. It makes us deeply uncomfortable. The sophistication and the blatant evil are two different sides of the spiritual realm. Most of us today, specifically here in the United States of America, we don't encounter or deal with the spiritual realm very often. You see, the sophistication of it, that evil has found its place, it's found its name, it's found its behavior, it's found its addiction, it's found its secret, private place. And many people engage in the wickedness of the, of the spiritual realm, and they don't really see it for what it is. It's just that sophisticated. But anybody who's spent time on the mission field, anybody who's been on the front lines of the gospel being shared in places of great darkness, in places where, where evil is run rampant and it's just overt and out there and in front of everybody, that kind of blatant, unsophisticated evil can shatter, can terrify us, as Western Christians, because we just don't deal with that very often in our world. In Jesus' day, the same thing was often true. People who were possessed, people who were genuinely wicked, where the, the demons had entered into them and were running their life, the spirit of evil was being demonstrated in the fruit of their behavior. Society in general put those people away, cast them out, got them away. They don't want to see it. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want to be confronted with that. And they most certainly don't want to have to live around it. 
And so they put this demoniac out into the tombs, into the graveyards, and that's where he was surviving. He was destroying his body, unbelievable strength and resilience, yet destroying the body and just acting maniac and crazy all the time. And even the people of Gergesi, who were by no means Jesus followers or God followers, wanted this guy out. That's what we do when we don't understand it, when we're afraid of it, when we're confronted with something, we want to put it away. And that's what they did. It's why for us as Western Christians, it's so important that we understand the reality of spiritual warfare and the spiritual realm. And we understand that the spirit of Jesus that dwells in you is stronger than that which dwells in the world. And when Jesus Christ is ruling in your heart and reigning in you, your behavior, your spiritual behavior will be as different to the people around you as the demoniacs was because the spirit that indwelled him caused his behavior to surprise, to off-put, and to startle the people around him. So let's juxtapose for a minute. You, you, you game? Let's imagine you are filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And the fruit of that Spirit begins to be born in you. And what people see in you are all of a sudden love, joy, Peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and long-suffering. Huh. And your attitude towards other people is one of love. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind. You love your neighbors yourself. And, and you've chosen to, to, to love justice, to seek ways to demonstrate mercy. And you're walking with humility before your God and your fellow man. And all this typifies you because the Holy Spirit of God is living in you, dwelling in you, and is being acted out in your behavior every day. Can I tell you what's going to happen? It's what Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians when he says that the Spirit in us is like an aroma. It's like a fragrance being raised up to heaven. And to some, it's the smell of life leading to life. And others, it's the stench of death leading to death. And what Paul was trying to say illustratively in his brilliant Pauline way, he's saying that when you live like Jesus calls you to, some people are going to react to that. And they're going to go, I, do, I don't want you around. You make me uncomfortable. I don't, I don't like who you are. You, you bring out the awareness in me of the kind of person I really am. And I don't like you. You make me feel guilty. You make me feel dirty. You make me feel lesser. And I don't want to be around you. And so they want to put you away. Even though the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, understanding, humility, justice, and mercy that typifies a real spirit-filled, God-changed Christian is good. But it makes evil people aware of who they really are. Now, that would be what a spirit-possessed person would look like. Whose game? Doesn't that sound great? What if, what if Sturgeon Bay Community Church was filled with those people? Here's what would happen in our society and in our culture. Some would see the smell of life or smell the smell of life leading to life. They would be drawn. It would be a beautiful aroma as it is to God. And they would be drawn to this place and want to surround themselves with that and become more like it because the Spirit lives in them and dwells in them and they want to commune in that. But others who hate God, 
who are filled with a different spirit entirely will be repulsed and repelled by that because they want nothing to do with it. And they will do anything in their power to silence, to oppress, to repress the actions of Jesus and his people. Do you understand you wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this current age? Do you understand that the spiritual warfare in your world is just as real today as it was in Jesus's, but we just don't see it because evil has become so sophisticated and we, the church, have become so numb. And we just assume we'll live a nominal Christian life We'll, we'll do some nominal things, get our fire insurance card checked. You know, we're good when we die. I'm keen with JC. But you're not really living a life that's distinctly spirit-filled and different in the world around you. So nobody's repelled by your version of Christianity, your nominal, silly, lukewarm, worthless version of, I just want to make sure I'm good when I die, but I'm going to live the way I want now. By the way, what did Jesus says he does with that kind of a faith? spews it out of his mouth. Now, if the Gergesene demoniac, that's the, that's the way the demon-filled guy in Gergesene, by the way, if the Gergesene demoniac can fall at the feet of Jesus and recognize he is the Messiah, the Son of God, why do we do anything less? Our responsibility is to submit ourselves to him as Lord who has dominion over spiritual powers and over us and that we should be filled with the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ and living it in such a way that people around us see the gospel and are cut to the core and challenged to either accept it or to reject it. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to live the gospel out and give the Holy Spirit the opportunity to convict. Now, isn't that encouraging? Don't let the demoniac freak you out. Let him encourage you. The fact that when somebody is filled with evil, filled with the spirit of evil, they're going to act like it. And when you're filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ, church, I hope you act like it as well. In verses 18 through 20, something interesting happens, though. So if you're in, in your Bibles with us still, Mark chapter uh, 5, verses 18 through 20. As he was getting into the boat, that's Jesus getting into the boat, uh, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you, how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. Yes, they were. The people of the Decapolis had seen this man, this maniac, demon-possessed, body-destroying, outrageously strong lunatic, filled with evil. They had seen him for years. And suddenly the man is lucid, he's healthy, and while he still bears the scars of his past, he's dressed well and speaking well, and he's telling people that Jesus, the construction-working rabbi from the other side of the Jordan, cast out the demons, and now I'm made right, I'm healed, I'm normal. This is the impact that Jesus has had on me. Now, the Decapolis, let's pay attention here. The Decapolis, it means ten cities. 
So the Decapolis isn't like some special, you know, code word. It just means the ten cities. In this area of the world, on either side of the Jordan, there are diverse cultures in his day, just like there are in ours. The Decapolis would be in modern-day Syria, uh, modern-day Jordan. These people are Arabic in their ethnicity. They are Mesopotamian in, in their culture and ethnicity. They're not Jews. Now, how many of you would join me in saying, I was hearing as a child when I grew up in the church that uh, these were Jewish people who were over here who had pigs, and since they weren't living according to the law, when Jesus threw out the demons, he threw them in the pigs as a reminder that you need to live like good Jews. How many of you heard that growing up? Isn't that funny? Bad scholarship. Oops. Uh, A lot of our pastors of days gone by studied in commentaries that were, you ready? You ready for it? Wrong. The reality is that those people over there weren't Jews at all. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, in this area of the Levite, only about 23% of the population were Jewish. The rest of them were just like today. They were Arab, they were of Bedouin descent, they were Mesopotamian, they were Semitic, but they weren't Jewish. And so in this particular area, the people of the capitalists were Hellenists, they were Roman, uh, they were people who had nothing to do with the Jews and their God, they were Gentiles. Now, I just want to make sure that got across to you real quick because I'm not sure it fully did. They were Gentiles. Okay? So when Jesus sends this man who had just been cleansed of the demons and he sends him out, what's he telling him to do? Go home and tell your own people and to report to them how much the Lord has done. Hey, what do you call it when Jesus sends somebody out with his message? What's that word? What's that person called? Yeah, but here, when Jesus does it, what do we call those people Jesus sends out with his message? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, that was a little bitter on some tongues, wasn't it? Wait a minute, this guy can't be one of the apostles. We figure that when Jesus sends somebody out, it was, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, like that. (laughs) I've also heard for years and years and years, That Jesus, an accusation that Jesus came as a Jewish rabbi to the Jewish people with a Jewish gospel for Jewish ways. And that it was the Old Testament continued in Jesus, and Jesus didn't take the gospel really to the Gentiles. That was the apostle to the Gentiles who we identify as Paul, who was Saul. Yet, I'm sorry, let's back it up just a second. Jesus, in his early miracles right here, the Messiah, the Son of God, cast the demons out of a man. By the way, Jesus knew he was there. He's God, for heaven's sakes. Jesus goes, he meets the man, he casts out the demons, and he sends him to the Jewish, I mean, the non-Jewish Gentile Decapolis with a message of the gospel. Wow. You want to know what those people did? They talked about it. This is a big deal. What just happened? This guy, we know who this guy is. And now a construction worker, Jew, from Galilee, who speaks up there at the synagogue in Capernaum all the time, we need to go find out about this. Because they've heard about his healings. But now one of their own just got healed. This is amazing. A Jew would interact with us? A Jew would cast out demons? How is that possible? I want to know more. You know what the effect of the gospel is when it transforms a life? You want to know what happens when people who've known you the way you were 
They've known your foul-mouthed, violent, ill-tempered, lying, grudge-holding, alcoholic self. When you, when you come to Jesus and your life is changed, when you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, when Jesus Christ comes and a new spirit indwells you and a new spirit acts out, you know what happens? People want to ask questions. How did this happen? We knew you before. What's different about you now? That's the effect of the gospel. And that was the effect on this man. So let, let me give you a little, little bit of geography here as we get ready to move on to the next one. First of all, we've said so far today, by the way, that Jesus has dominion over spiritual powers. That's what he did. But let's jump down to the bottom one for just a second. Jesus also has dominion over the political and religious powers that are at work in his world. Now we're going to look intensely here in just a minute at Jairus. We're going to see that. But before we go there, the Sea of Galilee or the Gergesene Sea that Jesus is traveling back and forth on. It has a north and a south, an east and a west. And all the way around that sea, there are ports and towns and there's sections of seashore. And those sections of seashore are complain, or, or sorry, are, are um, retained. They're owned by, they're fought over by certain um, city-states, certain municipalities. The Jews had theirs, the Scythians had theirs, uh, the people from Decapolis had theirs. And they were willing to fight over that section of seashore because it was their access to where the fish grow, Right? It's an economy. When Jesus is going back and forth across that sea, he's essentially crossing a gulf from one culture to another, one culture to another. But he keeps coming back to his home port where he does his ministry, and that's in Capernaum or Capernaum. And it's going to be where the great synagogue is between the west and the east. So the people who live over there in Jordan and Syria and Iraq and the Mesopotamians, they're all doing trade coming through this area of Capernaum. And the Jews and, and the people who are, who, are, who are or Zionists, we might call them today, are all over here on the, the western side of the Jordan. And they do trade through Capernaum as well. So Jesus is perfectly positioned in his ministry to reach people who are Gentile and Jew, who are wealthy and poor, who are zealot, who are commoners who are Hellenists, who are Zionists. That's where Jesus is doing his ministry. Can I tell you something? It's the same way today. Jesus is here to do ministry in all of our hearts. Republicans and Democrats, can that happen? Can we have the same Jesus? Is that possible? Is it possible for the wealthy and the struggling to have the same Jesus? Is it possible for those of you who are strict in your religious tradition and those of you who are a bit more progressive in your religious tradition to both be coming to the same Jesus and the same Jesus be speaking directly to your hearts and challenging you to be filled with the Spirit and let that fruit of the Spirit be acted out in you? You see, Jesus is still mending hearts and building bridges today. It's exactly who He is. It's who He's always been. So let's take a look now a little bit further. Mark chapter 5, we're going to move into verses 21 to 24, and then we're going to jump ahead 35 to 43. Don't worry, we're not skipping God's Word. We're going to come back to it next week or the week after. Uh, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, and then 35 to 43. So if you have your Bibles, let's join us, or join it, chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He begged him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following 
and pressing against him. Now jump down to verse 35. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue. I jumped ahead too far for you guys, didn't I? I'll read it off the back wall. How's that? While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid, only believe. And he did not let anybody accompany him except Peter, James, and John, uh, James' his brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, <clears throat> people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him. By the way, that's Peter, James, and John. And entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kaum, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astonished. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them, to give her something to eat. Because, by the way, uh, dead people don't eat, right? So it's not just a parlor trick. The girl's eating. She's alive. Let's look at a few things here. Uh, first of all, as far as our points are concerned, Jesus has power over sickness and death. And he's going to demonstrate it in this house. Now, the person that comes to see Jesus, his name is Jairus. Now, just a minute ago, Jesus had been on the other side of the Gergesene Sea, the Sea of Galilee, and he had healed. He had been in, in, approached by a man on his knees who was a demoniac, filled with demons. Okay? Terrifying. This guy comes up and he falls on his knees before Jesus, who's the Messiah, the Son of God. Theme? And now Jesus arrives in Capernaum, and who comes running up to him and takes a knee in front of him? Who? The leader of the synagogue. A very religious, Jewish, pious wealthy, blue-blooded person with great influence and notoriety is also going to take the knee before the Messiah and say, help me. And in both of these scenarios, Jesus is going to exercise with enormous grace and love the power that's his to do so with. So as Jairus comes, Jairus is the synagogue leader. Now last week we talked a little bit about Sadducees and Pharisees. You remember? And, and some of you had always thought they were the same thing, just another way of saying it. But as we immersed ourselves in the culture of that day, Scripture started to come alive. By the way, that happens a lot, doesn't it? You get into the Scripture, you start to study it, find out what's going on, boom, it just comes off the page. And you realize, wow, there's so much more going on here than my Western American Wisconsin mind thought, or Illinois mind, or Texan mind, who knows. Sadducees, you see, they were blue-blooded, they were wealthy. Often they were of the tribe of Levi. And these people, uh, they ran the temple. They ran some of the really, really important uh, um, uh, uh, teaching houses around uh, Judaism. These people, uh, particularly here in this place in Capernaum, are going to be led uh, by somebody who's a Sadducee. Sadducees don't believe in the afterlife. They believe you just live, like the Torah said, the way God's laws are, and when you die, you die. It's just over. It's done. There's nothing afterwards. Amazing these people 
could be part of our religious heritage, isn't it? The, the Sadducees. On the other hand, were the Pharisees. These were common people uh, who were religious. Uh, they were very fierce in, in their following. Uh, they were purist Zionists. They believed in the Torah, the books of Moses, but lots of other stuff they added to it. Uh, they had the words of God in the Torah, but they also had all the words of man and all these other teachers and religious practices that were piled on top of it. And uh, you basically lived in fear and in guilt your whole life trying to be a good Sadducee. They had major influence over the masses, and they definitely believed in an afterlife. They just believed that most, of them, most people in the afterlife were going to a hell, and only the Pharisees would go to the heaven. Anybody ever met anybody like that? You think? Strange. Jairus, the leader of the synagogue in Capernaum, is almost certainly a Sadducee. Now let's open the doors a little bit more to our mind to what's happening in this moment. A Sadducee comes, and he asks Jesus to heal his daughter. What? Jesus is Lord not just over healing, but now Jesus is going to be demonstrating the lordship of who he really is and what his values really are for humanity. Because you see, in the ancient world, a girl just wasn't worth very much to their family. It's offensive to our Western ears, believe me, and it should be. But in the ancient world, a son, now he could work. He could earn a living, he could, become, he could get notoriety, and, and he could marry into a better family, or he can, he can till, he can plow, he can paint, he can work, he can lay bricks. He can be something that really benefits the family. He gets an education, he gets a great Jewish name, and we all respect and regard this child. But a girl, well, all she does is eat. She just takes. She can cook some, wash some clothes, but you know, what's she going to do? Maybe she'll get a good man and bring a dowry home. But to the ancient person's mind, isn't that offensive? But to the ancient person's mind, that's how they would think on a normal basis. So women, not nearly as valued. They're either property or second-class citizens. They can't vote. They can't lead. They can't teach. They can't help. They just take care of the house, whereas the guys, they have some value. Jesus is going to say, your system stinks. Not only is the little girl valuable, all women are valuable. And to Jesus, there's neither man nor woman nor Jew nor Greek nor wealthy nor poor. Sound familiar? In this thing, Jesus is going to say, daughter, you value. You are of value to God. You matter. He's going he's to see that Jairus is teaching a lesson to everyone around him that his little girl matters too. And this system where you only value males is not of God. And Jesus is going to stop all that he's doing to raise a little girl. Jesus is going to demonstrate power over death. The, the, the dichotomy is clear. Death, life. The girl is dead. People in the ancient world knew what dead looked like, right? It's uncommon for us. Um, it's uncommon for us to see death right in front of us. It's why it, sh it, it, it shakes us so bad. I served for, for almost seven years as a police chaplain, and, and I kind of got used to death after a while because it, it's there. You know, okay, here we go again. Yeah, got to do it again. By the way, I followed my dad into this. Don't do that unless God really calls you. It's, it's just not a great career path. Um, but death can be startling. You see, in the ancient world, when somebody died, they laid them out in the house, and this is where they were, and they would prepare the body, and people would come by, and they know what dead looks like. They experienced death far more common. The loss of child, child mortality in the ancient Hebrew world was somewhere around 60%. That's just amazing to me. 
Uh, but most people didn't see their 45th birthday in the ancient world. So death was common. Are we tracking? Jesus is going to show people who know that girl was dead, that she's alive again. They're going to see Jesus is Lord over sickness. He's over death. He's Lord over life. He's Lord over the gender stereotypes and the separation of the sexes that those people had done. Jesus is going to demonstrate that he's Lord over nobility and the commoner alike because the noble Jairus bows down to Jesus and asks for the healing of his daughter. And Jairus is asking for construction working commoner to come into his house, his mansion, and to heal his daughter. I wonder what that took for Jairus. I wonder what it took for him to get off of his ivory tower and submit to Jesus. I wonder how many of us today still think somehow that Jesus couldn't love me, that I'm not worthy, I'm not worth it. I'm too dirty, I'm too far gone for Jesus to step in and to repair and to heal and to love and to restore me. But he did there. And something that isn't quite as obvious here that's actually very important, um, in that verse he says, Jesus took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kaum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, let me not put on any airs here. I am not a Hebrew scholar. I am not a Greek scholar. I am not an Aramaic scholar. I am not a Chaldean language scholar. I do okay with the English language, but let's be honest. And so and in this moment, when Jesus enters into this situation, when he spoke to that little girl in the presence of her daddy, Peter, James, John, her mama, when, when Jesus speaks to that little girl, he did something that our Western English ears just don't hear. We don't hear that Jesus didn't speak to her in Greek. He didn't speak to her in Hebrew, which is definitely the language they were speaking in their home. It's Jairus' daughter. Come on. He didn't speak in that high Talmudic language that Jairus would have been so good with. He didn't speak to her in Latin. Jesus spoke to her in a Canaan-derived form of Aramaic. And he used words that at that moment in time were sending a massive message. I am very much a commoner. I am very much a man of the people. Imagine enormous Kentucky accent when Jesus says to her, Get you up and walk now. Jarius had to deal with something right now. Jarius is realizing <laughs> he spoke in a Canaanite-derived Aramaic commoner's language. Low-brow, dirtbag talk. Nowhere near as good as me. Yet the power to heal was in his hand. Now, folks... Jesus is sending a really clear message that we missed. Can, can I share you what, what the unobvious part of it is? You, you hear the cultural one, because I think I may have done it, overdone it a little bit with the Kentucky thing. Yeah. But right here in this moment, Jesus is not speaking in Talmudic Hebrew in a way that would make a Talmudic Hebrew Sadduceical family go, ah, oh, he's coming to our level. He doesn't do that. He does not affirm their take on the Talmud and the Old Testament. You see, Jesus is Lord over, the old, Lord over the Old Testament and the New. And in this moment, the new covenant of God's grace, which is for all people, regardless of whether you're from that blue-jacketed blue Kentucky mountain mining town or you're from New York City or Boston or Rio de Janeiro, 
Jesus steps into that moment and says, to all people, the gospel is for you. Get up, put death behind you, and walk into new life. That's the message. That's the new covenant. And that's what Jesus is doing in this moment. We don't hear it because that's not our culture. But let me tell you, it was a lightning bolt to Jarius and to Peter, James, and John, who had to just be going, once again, the guy blows our mind. There's just so much to be learned from this great rabbi, this great teacher. Jesus has demonstrated today power over the spiritual realm, power over sickness and death, and power over the political, religious, socioeconomic, and ethnic divisions of his day. So here's the question. Is Jesus Lord in your life? What parts of your life do you figure you're probably doing a better job at being in charge than Jesus would? The, the question is, do you just want Jesus to be your Savior? You want to get your fire insurance card checked and then go live like a hoodlum? What's the word I want to use here? Hoodlum? The rest of your life, a heathen? Do you, want to, do you want to go out there and just live it the way you want it? I'm a great American, but I'm not really a Christian. When people look at me, they, they see that I'm filled with something. Is it the Spirit of God or is it the Spirit of this age? Ooh. You see, how many of us want a Savior, but we don't want a Lord? And we're not willing to get on our knees to Jesus. We don't want to submit to Jesus. We don't want to lower our rights and our freedoms to Jesus. We want to make sure that we're standing up and we're, we're setting the terms for what, what Jesus can tell us to do or how we're going to live. How many of us are really letting Christ be Lord of our lives so that the spirit that is within you is being demonstrated by the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the long-suffering and the kindness and the gentleness and the justice and the mercy and the humility that comes from being a Jesus follower? So people see you, and they want to understand what's made you different. The way the Gergesian demoniac most definitely drew a crowd at his difference. The way a little girl who had been dead is alive. Not only is she alive, she's filled with the life and the knowledge that she matters before God. And that her role and her place in society isn't determined by her gender or our identity, but by who she is in front of Jesus Christ. Wow. So who is Jesus to you? At this point, I'd ask you to, to close your eyes, to bow your head. I just want you to get in front of God for a minute. Nothing magical here, but I just want you to spend a few moments in prayer as, as we engage this together in this place this day. The questions that we really need to struggle with and the statements we need to make, first of all, is Jesus, you have dominion. You are Lord. The demoniac could say it. The religious blue blood could say it. How about you? And you say, Jesus, have dominion in my life. I want to encourage you, Jesus is completely safe to be in charge. Maybe you've been abused by authority in your life. 
maybe a authority figure, a father figure, a person in charge has mistreated you. Maybe you placed your faith, your hope in a politician. You placed your identity in a boss, a manager, an owner. Friends, people are going to let you down. But Jesus never lets you down, never disappoints. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You are safe in Jesus. So Jesus, we know we are completely safe in you. To let you be in charge, to let you be Lord, to let you have dominion. God, our prayer today during this time is that you would show us where you need to be Lord in our lives. Jesus, we've tried to run it all, to do it all, to answer all the questions, to place faith in other things. But Jesus, you alone are Lord. You're not asking for admirers. You're asking for sold-out, spirit-filled followers. Jesus, would you show us right now in our silence where we need to surrender some things to you and let you just be Lord? Father God, in this room are people who desperately want to walk humbly before you, to be filled, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. I just pray that you would grant us that wish, that you would begin to bring to us great awareness this week about where we are trying to be, Lord, where we are trying to be in control, and it's just not going to go anywhere. Lord, would you give us a desire to surrender our hearts, to take our knee to you, and to let you be in charge. God, let us be filled with what the fruit of the Spirit demonstrates. God, let us be people that other folks look to and say, what makes you different? Tell me your story. And Lord, give us opportunities to proudly step forth and to say, here's what Jesus did for me. God, you sent out an apostle in the form of a man who used to be possessed. And you send him to the, to the Decapolis, to those non-Jewish, Gentile pagans to say, here's my story. Here's what Jesus did for me. God, would you give us the same boldness to go out to the people of Sturgeon Bay and Milwaukee and Madison and Chicago to be able to say, this is what Jesus did in me. This is the change that happened in my life. God, would you give us that boldness and that opportunity? Lord, be Lord. Not just Savior, but Lord, change us from the inside out, God. We pray these things in the name of you, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of his Holy Spirit.